Two and a Half Admins, episode 153. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara article plug, Alan, is three advantages to running FreeBSD as your server operating system. Are they A, it's not Linux, B, it's not Red Hat, and C, it's not Ubuntu? Uh, Not quite. We focus more on the unique selling features of FreeBSD. So mostly integration with ZFS and boot environments, the fact that you can do your packaging yourself and get custom packages and build it the way you want, and just the fleet management possibilities to manage a whole lot of machines without as much effort. Fair enough. Well, link in the show notes as usual. Google has put forward a proposal to update the robots.tech standard for the era of AI, machine learning, LLMs, whatever you want to call it, scraping of the web for the latest fad, let's call it. Yeah, so a lot of the issue here is uh, robots.txt was never intended to deal with issues of companies trying to scrape your website looking for data to train models with. Robots.txt was intended to deal with web crawlers looking to do indexings for search engines and what have you. And it, it also was not really prepared for the idea that the same web bot or crawler might be doing multiple things. There's not a great way in robots.txt to say, hey, Google, it's cool for you to index my site in order to rank it on your search engine. It is not cool for you to feed all the stuff that you find on it into your you know, training data set for BARD. It's one or the other. You, if you say, no, Google, you can't crawl me, then guess what? Your site's not going to get indexed. There are also issues in that sites keep getting larger and larger. And as we have more issues with different types of crawling, different numbers of bots, what have you, the number of entries you would have to create in a robots.txt file to cover all the different circumstances you might want to cover on a site of any size, it gets pretty monstrous. And you've got about an upper limit of 500k and how many instructions you can cram into robots.txt before the whole system starts breaking down. Well, in particular, they're talking about imposing a, a newer limit to deal with that. But I think the biggest thing is... Should more of this LLM stuff be opt-in? Should we fix the mistake we made with robots.txt 30 years ago, which was, oh, we're going to scrape your site unless you publish some rules on where we're not supposed to go, and instead say, now we're in the modern era, I will make a list of where you're allowed to scrape from, and if I don't have a list, it means you're not allowed to take my ship. That's great and all, but... You can't convince me that you've never monitored a site and noticed all kinds of crawlers busily scraping every last bit of it with no regard whatsoever for what you put in that text file. It's all optional. Mm -hmm. And if we're being realistic, yeah, we can tell companies, no, you can't scrape my publicly accessible content to put in your training data set. They'll just do it anyway. Yeah, well, I think some of this is in response to a bunch of the companies crawling and scraping stuff getting sued by the people being like, we managed to show that your model spat out our text, which means you obviously fed it our input and ignored the copyright part of it. And so I feel like there should be more of a middle ground here and that more thought should go into it. And, you know, Google's just starting a conversation about it at this point, but it feels like, A, the conversation probably should have started before and tacking this onto the way things used to work might not be the right model for solving this problem. And see, robots.txt, you know, a site-wide robots.txt is just, it's no longer sufficient for the complexity involved in this. Again, you know, with mm-hmm. 
for something like my own personal blog, it's, it might not be that big of a deal. But if you've got a site with, you know, millions of documents on it, you cannot control all of it as granularly as you might like in a single site-wide robots.txt, which is why some people are suggesting that instead of using robots.txt, we should instead start using meta tags about large language model training. That way you can just specify in the page itself, is it okay to index this or not? Right. That has more complications with having to parse all the stuff in the page. You know, Alan, if you're feeding the page into a model, I don't think you get to complain about having to parse a meta tag in it. <laughs> no, but I'm guessing that most of these models are using something like Chrome and just getting the readable text out of it. And so don't see the meta tag. But the other point I was going to make is one of the big things that has changed about the internet since the robots.txt day is that the person who wrote the content doesn't necessarily control the robots file anymore. Never did. Right. But like if you think about something like Reddit, most of that content isn't controlled by Reddit even, or your discourse site and so on. And so maybe something closer to the meta tag makes sense. But, you know, the same thing goes with like Facebook and other stuff where people publish stuff. Maybe a better example is like medium.com or something where people are actually posting articles rather than just little things. But to some degree, some of that is not the site actually is the one who gets should be deciding how it works. And, you know, the, the, one of the articles we have in the show notes specifically talks about using something like Creative Commons licensing on the content to control whether or not the LLM is allowed to do stuff with the content. And then that could make it much more granular where, you know, this content that I wrote is licensed this way and the bot can do or not do these things with it. But the rest of the site is other people's stuff, and, and you'll have to ask them, basically. But the problem with a meta tag like that is that if you're posting on a site, you usually don't get to inject raw HTML into the page. So how do we come up with some kind of standard for licensing the content you put on the internet in a way that's machine recognizable? Well, it wouldn't be that hard for platforms to give you an option like just a, a drop-down menu of what tags you want to use. Right, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Or, you know, YouTube lets you pick the license on your content and GitHub yeah, exactly, and a bunch of other yeah. things. But is there a way that doesn't require all these sites to change? Or can we just, you know, no. put something in the text? No. <laughs> Probably not. There isn't. So I wonder if there's something we could do like SPDX has done for source code, where there's just a machine-identifiable tag you could put at the starter end of a, a document to indicate the license for it. Well, I mean, basically, that is the meta tag that we've been talking about, you know, a, a meta tag that, that grants license. Right. I just mean something that's not necessarily an HTML tag, since if I'm posting user-generated content, I'm usually not allowed to inject an HTML tag. But if we had something like a specifically formed string, that would be recognizable as text. Well, then how do you know which part of the page it applies to? That, that may be an issue. Ultimately, if you're talking about an end user who doesn't have direct control over what goes on to the server, they're going to have to be seeking a platform that grants them the right to do that. And realistically, most platforms won't. They never will because it's inconvenient for them. They won't want to. And most users won't care enough about it because they don't care enough about licensing. So they won't bother looking for it. You know, the same reason we have cars that we can't freaking work on anymore because consumers don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they care when they go to the mechanic, but they don't ever care when they go to the dealership. So can I be a bit cynical about this and ask, why is Google starting this conversation? Because they don't want to get sued as much. <laughs> well, that might be. Uh, the, the charitable view might be that it's just good folks within Google who actually want to do it because it's the right thing to do. But then surely all blog posts and stuff have to go via legal. 
So you'd think like there, there must be some company reason for doing it. And yeah, is it because they don't want to get sued? But even acknowledging that it's an issue is potentially a reason, not necessarily to get sued, but it's like almost evidence in a case or, you know, part of a case against them. It seems like their best bet would just be stay silent on this and let the community decide this kind of thing. The community can't decide it. Ultimately, this is something that has to come down as a standard. So your choices are for a huge internet giant corporation like Google to come up with some kind of a standard or for a you know neutral regulatory body to do so. But the community doing it, unfortunately, is just a non-starter here. And the other thing that's worth pointing out is that AI or no AI, this was an overdue move from Google because even without the issues of large language model training, robots.txt already was unwieldy and did not work for large sites. Well, I was thinking the W3C, for example, I consider that to be more of a community thing than Google. Yeah, but if you've looked at any new standards they've come out with, they're usually driven by a Google. Mm-hmm. Mm. And either way, Google is going to want to be part of the standard setting process. So the best way to make sure you don't get left out is to be the first in. Yeah, start the conversation. Yeah, First past the post. So one of the issues here also is that for large language models like Bing's ChatGPT or Google's Bard or what have you, it would be very helpful for those models to have access to this kind of license information. Because one of the issues we've seen recently is that uh, the large language models integrated into search engines are able to, even though they weren't specifically supposed to, completely bypass paywalls. There hasn't been a whole lot of detail on how they're doing it, but uh, for example, OpenAI just disabled the Browse with Bing feature in ChatGPT because it discovered people were asking for copies of paywalled articles, for example, from Fortune magazine, and ChatGPT was just, here you go, barfing up the full text of the article. Now, OpenAI has not said how that was happening, whether the, the model learned how to use, you know, bypass sites to get at the content or whether it just had direct access to the content, you know, for indexing purposes. And that got reused for the model when it should not have. But one way or another, that's an issue that can't really get resolved without having license information directly available to the models. Yeah, although in this case, I assumed it was somebody using Browse with Bing had a login and got to the site through the paywall and then Chat GPT trained itself on the page they were looking at and then was able to feed it to other people. I don't think we're actually talking about the training data set at this point. I think we may be talking more about the way that the trained model is executing its post-training search functions. Hmm. A lot of the models now are able to access the internet themselves, not just refer to their training data set, but they can actually go out and look at content on the internet trying to match information with what the user is looking for, which, I mean, really, that's what search engines have always done to begin with. I mean, that's what Google is. It is an AI model that goes and tries to match data that it finds on the internet to what you asked it for. It's not all just coming out of, right. you know, a training data set. And it might be that Fortune specifically lets bots in to index that stuff so that it'll show up in your search and deliver you to the paywall, except for in this case, the bot would give you what was behind the paywall. We've all seen that. You know, you go to Google and you look for information on some news and you find a very promising looking article that the full text is showing on the blurb on Google's results page. But then you click the article and you get nothing but paywall. Well, in the case of Fortune, I've just gone there and clicked on a random article and 
you see a little bit of it and then it's all blurred out and it says you've got to sign up. But then if you view page source, it's right there in the HTML, all the text. So it's not exactly rocket science to extract that. Firefox reader mode uh, does a pretty good job of getting you access to the content. Yeah, yeah. I've just clicked on that and the same thing. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. You go. And so you can see how ChatGPT, like Jim was saying, using its access to the internet could do that. But I also wouldn't put it past them to be feeding it data from people's browsing sessions that are using this AI with Bing stuff. I frankly would not put it past a model to have learned during its training phase how to use firewall or you know, paywall bypass sites. I, I don't think that's beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. But as this keeps going and we maybe eventually get to the point where the AI is using content from your browsing session, we get all kinds of other issues. Like what if I log into my health insurance provider or my banking stuff and I don't want that information necessarily being fed back in the same way. Podcasting is an audio medium, but I wish everybody could have seen the expressions chase themselves across my face as Alan is describing the idea of an AI model just surfing over your shoulder and seeing everything in your browsing sessions as you create them. And I would just like to say whatever that browser is, I preemptively want to burn it with fire. Well, as long as it leaves the incognito tabs alone, it should be all right. Yeah, this is definitely a do not want, but it definitely seems to be where this is headed. It's like, yes, you have to give us all the data so that we can learn about you and give you better answers. All I can hope is that Firefox will keep fighting that good fight and not implement this kind of bullshit. All I can hope is that we'll keep having actual protocols to some degree, rather than all the really large corporations evolving us to the point where we no longer have actual protocols, and we just have different models on either end learning to communicate with one another in a way that absolutely nobody else understands because it was part of their training process. And now they're just running inference to talk to each other. You're giving me future shock, Jim. Even without that, we're already facing the loss of standard protocols as everything's moving to its own proprietary thing. Right. So for example, you know, people complain about uh, Google effectively having begun setting web standards by, uh, you know, standards as code, like whatever Chrome or Chromium does becomes the effective standard rather than everybody coding to a published standard and, you know, having a different set of bugs or whatever. It's effectively the same thing as that, except rather than humans who can describe what they did and have some kind of internal process document, at least, that sort of kind of describes what they did with the code, or having readable code, for that matter, because code can be used as the standard. It executes the same way every time, right? But if you've just got two different AIs that learn how to talk to one another, they can't explain to you how they do it. You can't dissect them really to figure it out. I just have this kind of AI here to talk to that other kind of AI there, and they talk, and like, that's it. There's no code comments in AI, eh? Nope. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Factor. Now that we're at the height of summer, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals to support sunny, active days. Factor can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track reaching your goals. With Factor, skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. Too busy running around during the day to think about lunch? Keep your energy up with Lunch To Go. Effortless, wholesome meals like grain bowls and salad toppers that are ready to eat when you're on the go. No microwave required. Jim tried Factor and said the meals were quick and easy to prepare and liked that there was plenty of variety. So support the show and go to factormeals.com slash 25A50 and use code 
25A50 to get 50% off. That's code 25A50 at factormeals.com slash 25A50 to get 50% off. The US Cyber Trust Mark is being introduced by the Biden-Harris administration. This is a labeling and certification scheme for IoT devices. Isn't this exactly what we called for a few months ago? I guess somebody was listening. Yeah. <laughs> I still have little mixed feelings about this. It's like, this is what we wanted, but the government's running it, so is it going to be any good? But also, if the industry ran it, then it would just be a rubber stamp too. So I don't know that there could ever be something that would actually leave me satisfied, but it's at least an attempt to start moving in a direction instead of just everybody being, you know, out of luck uh, as we are right now. I am very uncharacteristically going to go just 100% Pollyanna and super optimistic on this and say, I really love the look of this thing. It's not just that the government has stepped in and said, oh, we need to put a mark on things. When The Verge reported on this, they repeated a comparison between the the new cyber trust mark and Energy Star. And I don't think that's the best comparison. Really, the way this thing is set up, it's more like the FDA labels on the food that you buy in the supermarket, because there is a whole list of things that CyberTrust Mark can tell you about how long the device will be supported, what kind of vulnerabilities it might have, what, what of your data it might or might not share. I mean, there's just a whole lot of things that it can embed into a little QR code that you can then scan and, you know, read like a whole list of specifications on that device, things that you should be concerned about with security or just privacy, you know, data sharing, you know, what have you. I couldn't have asked for better than that. And there aren't many things that I will go this wholehearted about in approval coming from my own government, but I love FDA labels and it looks like I'm going to love these things too. It's, it's a lot better than I expected. It's not just a rubber stamp, like designed for windows XP. <laughs> right. And you know, it's kind of like the, the other marks that you'll have on electronic devices is like, this is not going to electrocute you unless you dump it in the tub. And, you know, if we can at least set a minimum bar, that'll help. But like Jim said, this does seem to go a bit further than we would have expected at, at first blush. And so it does look like it's at least a promising start. Yeah, it's not going to include routers and controllers by the looks of things straight away. Not yet. Those are supposed to come at the end of 2023. It's just a bit more complex to get everything figured out that you need to for routers. But it's not going to be on devices by then. That's just when the specs will be agreed. Right. So devices will start getting the actual cyber trust mark in 2024, and it's possible that routers and controllers and stuff will be included, but that's kind of still up in the air at this point. Right. The NIST is defining cybersecurity requirements of consumer-grade routers as a priority, given the risk they present to eavesdropping, password theft, and other nefarious activities in targeted homes, reports The Verge. The NIST is expected to complete this work of defining the cybersecurity requirements of routers by the end of 2023. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll be on the label at launch in 2024, but it means that this is not just a vague pie in the sky, like they have a milestone by which they expect to have figured out what needs to be on the label for routers. And it's probably worth noting that's not only what we normally think of as routers, you know, like a, a Wi-Fi router or a wired only router that you put directly in between all of your devices and the internet at the cable modem. We're also talking about like third-party uh, Zigbee and uh, Z-Wave hubs would also be included in this spec. Now, if you buy an all-in-one IoT product, like for example, Amazon Blink security cameras, they come with their own 
controller devices that serve the same purpose as these Zigbee hubs do. In a case where it's sold all in one like that, then the whole product gets the cybersecurity trust mark and we don't go off into the router stuff. The router stuff applies when you have like a separate Zigbee hub that you bought not with a bunch of Zigbee devices, but just in addition to in order to control them, but it didn't all come from one manufacturer. They're also targeting not just consumer stuff with this. Apparently, the U.S. Department of Energy is announcing collaboration with national labs and industry partners to do the same cybersecurity labeling for things like smart meters and power inverters, like stuff people have for solar panel installations and so on that are an important part of a grid, which you know is also a cybersecurity worry. So the fact that this is not going to be just consumer-grade stuff, but also not industrial-grade, but like infrastructure grade equipment is going to start following this as well. But the other really important part is that the FCC intends to use a QR code linking to the product certification as part of the mark so that if you see something with a mark, you can actually scan the mark and see on the government's registry the actual certification and make sure that some Chinese company isn't just putting the logo on their product even though it's not certified. Everybody come back in 2025 and laugh at me when it all turns out to be horrible for some reason. But for right now, <laughs> I'm loving it. I did zero complaints. Love everything about this. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Christian writes, Do you have any ideas on encrypting a server at home while still being able to boot it when away? ZFS and Lux need a password to boot. Should I only encrypt the data partition so I can SSH in? Yes. I'd appreciate any tips you have. Yeah, that's basically how it works. I've seen people do something where with Geli, which is the previous version of Lux, where in the boot partition, there's basically a key file that contains part of the key to decrypt the volume. But if you're doing that, you're not actually providing any security. Mm -hmm. The closest one I've seen like that is uh, an e-commerce company in the past had their database servers encrypted and the key file that controlled the disk encryption was on a USB stick. And so when they had to move machines between data centers, they would take the USB sticks and transport them like on their person to the new data center while the machines got shipped FedEx or whatever to provide some security and things like that, but not really a great way. So like Jim said, yeah, what you probably want to do is not encrypt the boot part and only encrypt the data. Actually, uh, I'll grab a link for it. Clara has an article on how to do this on FreeBSD to have one boot environment that's not encrypted. You boot it, and once it's up and you can SSH in, you log in, you mount the ZFS partition and enter the password, and then you reroute into the encrypted version of OS and actually switch the running system to running out of the encrypted thing. For like, if you want to have an encrypted route, but host it on a server at a, a provider where you know, you're not necessarily going to have console access or it's just inconvenient to console access to, to at boot, where your machine will be able to boot come up in SSH, but you have to SSH in, mount it, and it doesn't actually do the thing it needs to do until you've typed in the password. So it's only a half measure for this. I will say also, again, the, the only encrypted data partition question was, that's probably the mo about the most reasonable answer. You can expand on that a little bit. Since we're talking about a server in the first place, 
just don't do your work on the bare metal. Do it in VMs. Encrypt the VMs. They require you to put in the key to unlock them and boot them, but uh, have the actual bare metal itself not encrypted. So you can boot it up, SSH into it, and then you can start your VMs where the actual important stuff live. Yeah, and just in general, you know, the operating system part of the server should be completely replaceable anyway, right? And so as long as you have only the data is the sensitive part, then you can get away with that without even having to do a VM. But a VM or a container, often encrypted volume is definitely the easier way to have a a clear line between what's encrypted and what's not. Yeah, it definitely provides you with a little bit better isolation and security for what you're actually looking for. Because if you don't do the work on the bare metal, if you do it inside the VM and the encryption is inside the VM, you have a separation between the operating system, which is stored unencrypted at rest on the metal versus the operating system inside the virtual machine, which is fully encrypted at rest, period. What about IPMI? Wouldn't that solve this problem? Yes and no. It would mean that if, while remote, away from home, he wanted to restart the machine, he could do that and then use IPMI to log in and enter the password during boot and let the machine boot. The problem is, if, say, the power flickers at home while you're out you know, on vacation in a different time zone, the machine's not going to finish rebooting until somebody connects the IPMI and types in the password. So it means the server can be down for hours or days until somebody can come to the console and type in the password, either locally or with IPMI. That's why we're talking about this idea of giving it at least something so it can get up and something that somebody can SSH into is a bit easier. But in the end, if the data is encrypted, then it can't do anything until it's decrypted. Yeah, so what's the difference between SSHing in and connecting into the IPMI? Not much. So if all you need is a way to type in the password, it can work. Although depending on the, you know, if you're renting a server somewhere, it depends on the provider if they give you access to something equivalent to IPMI to be able to type in the password at the console. Here are some differences. One big difference is that uh, IPMI tends to have a lot more attack surface issues than uh, SSH does. There have been a lot of nasty IPMI vulnerabilities. And in general, the technical term for people who expose IPMI to the internet is idiot. I would not recommend exposing IPMI directly to the internet. So now you're talking about, well, I need another system that's up that I can, you know, bounce off of. Yeah, I've, I've got to be able to connect to a VPN on another system so that I can get safe access to the IPMI on the other one, assuming that IPMI is even on the board, which is only going to be the case for proper server motherboards, which let's face it, a lot of folks who talk about a server at home, it does not have to have IPMI to be a server. It doesn't have to be on a proper server motherboard, quote unquote, to be a server. It just has to be doing server jobs. And what most folks do with that at home is, you know, it's a repurposed desktop PC or even, you know, purchased for exactly that purpose, desktop PC hardware, and there will be no IPMI on the board. And unlike SSH, you can't just install it onto whatever. With that said, if you were just hell bent on this idea and you want to do what you're talking about with non-server grade hardware, while you can't add IPMI, if your pockets are deep enough, you can buy a KVM over IP which is, you know, the the keyboard, video, mouse, you know, switch box, you can push a button, you've got one monitor, mouse, and keyboard connected to several computers. There are over IP versions of those. So it's basically, it's very similar to IPMI, including the fact that usually it's, you know, something along the lines of like a horrible Java client is required to access it, and it's vendor-specific and terrible. And it shouldn't be on the internet. Yeah, and it shouldn't be on the internet. So you're going to have to have something like a Raspberry Pi or a NUC that you can wire guard into first. Yeah. So 
there's not really any way around the if you need to type in a password during boot or just you have to type in a password to decrypt the data, there's not a good way to reboot unattended. At some point, there's some interest in ZFS encryption being having the option of using the TPM on the motherboard to store the key. But if it can reboot autonomously like that, is it actually providing the same level of protection that you want? Negative. I mean, if it's encrypted at rest, but if you steal the box, you can take it anywhere you want and plug it in and boot it right up. It's not encrypted at rest. <laughs> yeah, the TPM only gets erased if you try to boot something not via secure boot and so on. It, it doesn't really help. But it's apparently good enough for BitLocker or whatever in Windows, right? It is not. I was about to say, also, friends don't let friends trust TPM to hold their encryption keys because... Uh, Oh boy, I have had to deal with so many freaking laptops that were suddenly completely inaccessible because, you know, a firmware update or a driver update even, you know, coming in from Windows Update monkeyed with what was going on in the TPM enough to change its state and it no longer worked to unlock BitLocker. And that user is, they're done until somebody comes in and rescues them. And, you know, if you have not saved the scratch code that BitLocker gave you when you turned it on or you haven't stored it, you know, in Active Directory or something. Yeah, it's gone forever. You're never getting it back. With my Microsoft ARM dev kit machine, apparently it enrolls to your Microsoft account when you install it. And so when I turned off Secure Boot to boot FreeBSD on it and then switch back to going into Windows, I had to take a QR code off the screen and go to a Microsoft site and say, yes, this is okay. And it recovered my BitLocker key which is also creepy. You get similar things happening if uh, you change much of anything in the way of hardware on a machine, mm -hmm. even without BitLocker. If you're logging in with a Microsoft account as opposed to a local account and uh, you change much of anything in the way of hardware, it will invalidate the pin. Personally, I think the whole pin thing is just bloody Johnson stupid, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of humans out there that really, really, really want to unlock their computer with just a simple pin like they would unlock a phone with. And if you're using a uh, you know Microsoft Live account on your Windows PC, you can use a PIN instead of your password. I literally just had to deal with this today. I replaced the case and I replaced the CPU cooler. Now, granted, this is not just like a little fan. This was you know one of the I replaced an NZXT cooler with uh, some other manufacturers you know all-in-one fluid cooler, and it's one of these things that like it connects to the motherboard like five different places. But still. I replaced a case and a CPU fan and the user's pen would no longer unlock the account. She had to go to her phone and find out what her password was for her live account and use the actual password and then enable her pen again. I'm afraid the CPU cooler, I wouldn't have expected it to be something the BIOS would even notice. I also did not expect that. Maybe it was just the chassis intrusion detector, if it has one? <laughs> this particular machine was just an absolute bastard that somebody else hand-built for this particular client that I inherited. Mm -hmm. And I have been elbow deep inside that thing more times than I can count because of issues with, you know, things that wires that were routed badly or mm. uh, there were a couple of fans that weren't plugged in at all. And like the machine didn't necessarily need them, but like the user was pissed off because they can visibly see these giant 120 millimeter fans that are not spinning. And they're like, what the hell? And I open it up and I, you know, discover that the guy plugged the fan into the wrong kind of header on the board or in a couple of cases, like it was a three pin fan and there were only four pin headers and he didn't know that you can plug the three pin 
plug onto the first three pins left to right of a four pin header and it will just work. <laughs> that is a fact. He didn't know that. So he just left them dangling. And the worst of it was this case has a giant glass window and it sits on the user's desk. So she can just <laughs> look over there and see that there's just wires dangling down from the top. Sounds like my studio machine, to be honest. And yet, in this same machine with fan wires just dangling down from the top of the case because he couldn't figure out how to plug in the fans, one of the other things I've had to do in my many elbow deep trips into this thing is um, I've had to go through an undo where he laboriously routed a bunch of other wires like behind the board through like cutouts or basically slaloming through the system to get to where they need to go. There's zero slack. You can't tell what's plugged into what because pieces of every wire are, you know, hidden behind the board. So I've, uh, it's it's a nightmare. Reminds me of one system I saw many, many years ago. And someone had gone so far as to hot glue the IDE cables into the motherboard. Oh, no. <laughs> Those fit solid. They weren't they were going to like fall out. There was no reason. I don't know why this person decided they needed to hot glue the IDE connectors. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joelrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.